Well, good morning, Bethany Church. Uh, good to be with you. My name is Abby Odio. I am one of the pastors here at Green Lake. Uh, we are wrapping up a series called One Another. For the last several weeks, we've been on what I would call a journey back to one another as a church. In so many ways, the last couple of years has uh, led to divisions amongst us, and we've witnessed this, as we know, politically, ideologically, theologically. And so the, the heart of this series has really been finding our way back to relationship with one another. What does that look like? How does Jesus call us into that? What does it look like to be the church, uh, given the many challenges of the present moment? And our text from today, from the book of Ephesians, invites us to look at the super important truth, this command, that we speak truth to one another in love. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you indeed have left us your spirit of truth. Thank you that... um, You promise to guide us and shape us and form us, that there is something about these words, Nathan read, that um, are real and are are true in a way that um, we don't just hear, but we actually are formed in them. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would be in this space, be in this room as we receive your truth this morning. May it be so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I recently uh, tried to read the book, Winnie the Pooh, to my kids. I have two kids there, one and five years old. Uh, they couldn't have been less interested. My oldest son, who is four, told me that there were not enough pictures or trucks. Um, so I ended up reading it on my own, which was fine. I'd never read it before. And in chapter eight of that story, some of you may recall this, uh, there's a part where Christopher Robin, the leader of sort of this little animal crew, announces a journey that they're all going to take to the North Pole. And this is all good and well, except for the fact that no one, including uh, Christopher Robin, knows what or where the North Pole actually is. And so at one point along the way, uh, the little baby kangaroo falls into the river and everyone sort of scrambles to help. And uh, Pooh rescues a stick and uses it to pull, pull the kangaroo out of the river. And um, they're standing there and Pooh has the stick in hand. And Christopher Robin turns and says to him, Pooh, where did you find that pole? Pooh says, I just found it. I thought it would be useful, so I picked it up. Then Christopher Robin says, very honestly, Pooh, the expedition is over. You have found the North Pole. Christopher Robin then proceeds to stick the pole in the ground, attach a flag to it that says North Pole. And that's all it takes. Now, as I was studying our text for today, this endearing little story kept coming to mind. See, central to our scripture is this notion of truth. And even saying that word can be a bit uncomfortable for folks because it's a word, it's a concept that's been such a source of confusion and even pain in our world. Whether it's news sources or folks on social media or politicians or special interest groups or systems of government, there are a multitude of factions and voices and platforms proclaiming quite loudly, this is truth. And with equal intensity, before the words are even out of their mouth, there's a dissenting voice claiming, no, you're wrong. This is actually the North Pole. And as we know, this, this noise, it's, it's dizzying. It's a bit disorienting. And for all of us, many of us, it has confused and eroded our ability to even trust such a thing as the truth exists. Uh, there's a French sociologist named Emile Durkheim. 
Durkheim actually established uh, the discipline of sociology, which is the study of human relationships. And in observing human behavior, Durkheim identified a phenomenon, really a state of being called anime. And he said, the core of this experience is a growing mistrust a person feels. Mistrust towards others, mistrust towards government and institutions. Perhaps you've even felt mistrust towards your church. Anime then is this deep sense that the whole game is illegitimate, that I'm invisible and unvalued. And at the end of the day, the only person I can actually trust is myself. And this distrust and isolation is coupled with an attempt to armor up emotionally, right? We flee intimacy. Uh, We attempt to protect ourselves from others. And Durkheim's conclusion is that anime completely breaks the human spirit. We're not made to live in this state. Instead of bringing us into deeper community with one another, it actually causes us only to trust our limited and incomplete perspective. Now, what's wild to me is that Durkheim originally wrote about these ideas in 1897. That's over a century ago. Nonetheless, these ideas have played out among us in profound and crippling ways over the last couple years in our nation, to be sure, but also in our church. Our distrust for one another is high. Our collective sense of anxiety is high. And all of that matters because that is the context in uh, which we come to our text this morning where Paul commands, speak the truth to one another. And to do that, we have to name up front that we have all become deeply skeptical of one another's truths. The church community to whom Paul is writing is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and they're no stranger to this dynamic of deep and internal division. Nonetheless, Paul says, it's in true speaking that we find our way back to one another, that we find our way back to each other, and this will ultimately be our grounds for transformation for us individually, but also for our community and for our world. So as we unpack what this could mean for us this morning, I want to focus on three words Paul uses in this text. Those words are deceit, truth, and love. Specifically, the primary deceit, the primary truth, and the primary, and love is the primary way. So let's consider that first word that appears in Ephesians 4.14 when Paul writes this, as a result, we aren't supposed to be infants any longer who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching with deceitful scheming. Now, on the one hand here, uh, we don't know completely what Paul is speaking of here when he addresses the deceit that is happening in this church. There's strong speculation that certain mystic religious folks are attempting to divert followers of Christ away from the sort of central message of the good news by insisting they need more than Christ to belong to God. And yet, on the other hand, we know exactly what is happening when Paul writes about deception in in Ephesians because it's the very same story that happened in Genesis 3. Many of you will remember that story. The man and woman are living in the garden. There is unity between the people and God, between the humans themselves. There is flourishing. There is justice. And then comes the snake. As my son likes to say when we read this part of his kid's Bible, that slippery little snake. And notice what the serpent, the deceiver, the evil one does in attempt to deceive. He does not hit Eve over the head with a stick, but instead he does something far more problematic. He invites her to consider 
an idea? What if this is all a sham? What if God is not actually with you and for you? What if God can't be trusted? What if you must act on your own to secure your own interests and well-being? And when the man and woman embrace this lie, the effect, as we know so well, is tremendous. Immediately, there is hiding and deception and blame. This gives birth to division and injustice and deep feelings of inadequacy and aloneness. This moment, this is the primary deception. This past summer, I read a book. um, It was a New York Times bestseller called Sapiens. It was a really interesting sort of exploration of what it means to be human. And in this book, uh, the author Yuvai Noah Harari makes the really interesting point that the reason Homo sapiens ended up as the dominant species wasn't our size or our strength, but rather our capacity for imagination. We are the only creatures, she claims, who have the ability to imagine what isn't, but what could be. And in so many ways, um, that fact about our existence is a gift. We're able to imagine realities that do not yet exist and bring them into being. We see this in art, in, in music, in reform that happens in the name of God's kingdom. At the same time, the underbelly here is that like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are also able to entertain deceptions and receive them as truth, to engage our imaginations and live as though certain non-realities are actually real. What if this is all a sham? What if this is all there is? What if God cannot be trusted? What if I must act on my own to secure my own well-being? I was reflecting this week on the depth of deception in our world, and it's interesting because in some ways it's, it's my vocation to study these words in Genesis, to be aware of deception and truth and how all that plays out among us. And yet at the same time, I'm also aware that my own story continues to be shaped, not always, but at certain points, by my own deceptive imagination that says, that believes that very same lie, it's up to you. You're on your own. This is all there is. And when this happens, I begin to live accordingly. My choices are shaped by a belief in that deception. Just this week, there were a few times where I I realized this. My husband and I had a a really minor conflict. But it was rooted in that same old junk and, and pride in my soul. To be clear, there's junk in his soul too, but that's his story to tell. But I just felt sort of stuck in this deception that I can't grow or change. There was shame in that for me. Another moment, feeling again disheartened sort of by injustice and disparity in our nation, tempted to think this is it. Like the problems we face are too large. The systems are too broken. And as a person of privilege, I can then simply retreat into my relatively safe and comfortable world. Deception is a slippery little snake. And depending on our own story, this deceptive imagination can play out in all sorts of ways. It may be what's driving you to overwork and feel exhaustion in an attempt to prove your worth and value. It could be what's at the source of, you know, destructive patterns of consumption that seem really seductive, but at the end of the day, you know they're empty. It could be a a cycle of shame that you feel stuck in, a cycle of fear, anxiety. I know that's been big for me at points. 
And deception, uh, these deceptions, they aren't just individual. They seep down into our systems and our power structures. This is why later in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul will warn the church about the deep evil that is powers and principalities and rulers. See, whether it be individual or embedded in systems, the hard thing about deception is that by definition, it's really difficult to identify. We settle very comfortably into it for a time into these patterns because at best they feel safe and at worst, you know, at least we're familiar with them. It's only fitting that after a um, a discussion of um, deception, we would arrive then at this conversation about that second word, truth. Truth. In verse 15, Paul offers a counter to the imagination of deception when he says, but speaking the truth in love, We must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So what does Paul mean when he says truth here? It's really essential that we understand that. And if we read the text, we actually find Paul offers that answer. In verse 7 of the text, he gives this somewhat odd visual image of Jesus. Paul writes that Christ ascended on high. He's referencing Christ going to be with the Father following his resurrection. And then parenthetically, he adds, when it says he ascended, What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, I know that's a lot of words, but the truth they communicate is so important. See, the great deception is that God is insufficient, that God is not enough, that God cannot be trusted. And that has implications for all of our stories and our world. But in response to the great deception, Paul reminds the church of the actual embodied truth of Christ who descended. A God who took on literal skin and bones and came close as if to say, you've believed the lie that you're alone, but you're not. You've believed God cannot be trusted, but God can. You've believed that it's all up to you. It's not. You're tempted to think that injustice will have the final word. It won't. Jesus' very existence, his presence as a God who descends, who is with, who is making new. This is the primary truth that collides with each of our stories. This is the new way we are invited to imagine what could be. There's this deeply poignant scene in scripture in John chapter 18. Before Jesus' execution on the cross, um, Jesus is having this private moment with Pontius Pilate, who is the governor, the the man holding power in that particular area of Rome. And Pilate is or believes himself to be the keeper, the enforcer of the truth. And Jesus has uh, been brought before him so Pilate can exercise the truth. It's his job to answer the question, is Jesus guilty or not? And in this deeply revealing moment, it's actually Pilate that ends up asking Jesus, what is the truth? I imagine in this moment, Pilate and Jesus are standing sort of face to face. To be clear, the text doesn't say that, but that's how I picture it. The man who thinks he holds the truth and the man who actually is the truth. See, Pilate asks the question and the response from Jesus is silence. And it's a really important silence. It communicates to us a couple of things. First, it reveals the important truth of Pilate's own brokenness. See, he's believed the lie that he's alone, that it's up to him, that his saving grace is power, but it's empty. And you can almost hear the frail sort of exasperation in the way he asks that question. What is the truth? 
the author Frederick Buechner speaks to this moment saying, Jesus stands there in silence in a way that throws Pilate back on his own silence. The truth of himself. See, oftentimes this is where truth telling begins with the bitter awareness of just how empty deception is. And friends, it's a hard but really, really necessary moment. But there's something else in that silence, a deeper primary truth. Jesus stands there in silence, not because he doesn't have the answer, but because Jesus is the answer. He stands there as if to say, Pilate, you want to know the truth? I've descended right here, right smack into your story. There is a God, Pilate, and he is so committed to you, he will do everything he can to undo this deception that is driving your life. The deception that has you believe you must lord over everyone else in order to matter. See, not long following this encounter, Pilate would actually play a significant role in killing Jesus on the cross. He hands Jesus over to that fate. But then three days later, the truth would be revealed and Jesus, risen from the dead, keeps showing up, keeps coming back, keeps inserting himself into our stories as the primary determining truth. See, when Paul encourages the church to speak the truth to one another, he's calling us back to that face-to-face moment. This moment of great vulnerability where our story, complete with its deceptions or fears or miscalculations, encounters a God who descends. This is the truth we are called to tell one another. The Greek text here literally reads, doing truth together. This means the truth is not exclusively a word we're called to speak to one another, but actually a different way of being in relationship altogether. We do truth together when we have the humility to believe that maybe the lesser truths I have made gospel in my own life are not in fact gospel. We do the truth together when we show up with honesty and share our story and our struggle. We do the truth together when we bear witness, when we really hear each other, uh, especially stories of people who are very different than us. And the primary word we tell each other is this, God has not left you. He hasn't. And it's so tempting to be deceived into thinking that is the case. Several years ago, I was living in Southern California attending seminary, and I had really the great privilege of being part of this Bible study. There was a halfway home that was sort of loosely connected to our church, and folks leaving prison could stay there as long as they needed while they kind of transitioned back into life. So many uh, people attended this church and also were a part of this Bible study. It was hosted in their home. And so one day after our Sunday gathering, uh, I was speaking with the leader of this Bible study, a woman I'd become friends with. Her name is Anne. And Anne said, you know, you should come to our Bible study. And I was thrilled to be invited. I said, "Uh, great, Anne, when do you meet? And she said, we meet at 6 a.m. And I was thinking to myself, great, uh, which day? And very seriously, Anne looked at me and said, every day. I was like, wow, you are a holy bunch of people. Uh, so the next morning was Monday and I showed up and at first it just sort of seemed like any other Bible study, right? Um, making small talk, uh, the coffee was terrible. We sat in uh, the living room of this home. It was great. But as we began reading and talking and sharing, something happened. These folks began to talk and relate to one another in a way that I can only describe as shocking in its truthfulness. There was no pretense. There was no hiding behind holy churchy language. Instead, there was a lot of truth-telling. 
This is my struggle. This is where I'm experiencing deep injustice and I feel overcome. This is where I'm tempted to believe lies about my own identity. This is where, you know, I'm slipping. I can feel myself slipping back towards addiction. In other words, this is where my deceptive imagination has taken off and taken control. And then as a community through, through worship and story and scripture and just their very presence there with one another, they reminded each other, Jesus has descended. Keep walking in that truth. I have to tell you, part of this was uncomfortable for me because I was so used to a very different way of being in church community, a way where you actually lead with your strengths. You put your Sunday best on and you go to church, a way where you talk about the truth in sort of exclusively intellectual terms because it's so much safer. And here was a group willing to go there, willing to tell hard truths and the primary truth to one another. As I was leaving, I remember Anne asked me, you know, how'd that go for you? Because I really hadn't said much. Um, And I responded sort of saying in disbelief, so you guys, you do this every day. And I'll never forget what she said. She looked at me and said, Abby, we'd be sorry if we didn't. Now, the point of the story is not to say you need to join a 6 a.m. Bible study, though God bless you if that's your takeaway. What I am encouraging us to consider is this question, are there spaces where you are telling the hard truths of where deception has landed us and hearing the primary truth of Jesus's descending presence? This could be a small group or a story group here at Bethany. This could, you know, be students in your dorm hall at SBU or at UW who, who gather together in some sort of intentional and honest way. Where are you doing the truth together? Because friends, how we answer that question is not simply a matter of legalism, but really having, of having our tr- imaginations transformed to, to becoming people who, what Paul will later say, have the mind of Christ. Finally, we come to this really important word, which is love. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we must grow in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Then he goes on in our passage to use the metaphor of a human body, one in which we as a church, all parts are working together. He says, we grow into Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. See, Paul's making it clear to us in this text, love is the primary way, the primary posture that informs how we tell and embody the truth to each other. And, and as we grow in that truth, as we become truth tellers, we also become together people who embody the loving way of Christ to those who are not here, who are not amongst us. Now, when we look at the the life of Jesus, we see him particularly critical of religious bodies because they never grow in their ability to love, to, to will the good of the people around them, especially the people who are oppressed. In fact, it's not the pagans that Jesus accuses of belonging to the devil, but actually the religious leaders. He does not mix words at one point, even telling them, this is John chapter eight, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Those are some fighting words. They're meant to grab our attention. He is telling the religious leaders the hard truth of their own deception. 
These are people who literally have the first five books of the Bible memorized. By all accounts, they know the truth about God. And yet here is Jesus saying to them in terms as clear as day, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're still living a lie. Why? Because there is no embodied love to your truth. And therefore you've missed the primary truth. It's the deceptive imagination. It's just been rebranded. At different times this past year, I've been privy like many of us to both theologically conservative and also theologically progressive sort of echo chambers. And in both those spaces, there is risk of just fighting with words and memes, forgetting that the call to look like Christ is always a call, not just to words, but to enter spaces embodying the way of Christ, which is love, which is willing the good of neighbor. The scientist Albert Einstein once said, we cannot solve a problem by the same consciousness that caused it. We cannot solve a problem by the same consciousness that caused it. I read that quote a few months back and I've just, I've been chewing on those words, personally feeling some conviction around them. Because in a sense, this is Jesus's words to the religious leaders. And this is Paul's really important word here to the church. The truth is that Christ has come. That is the North Pole, so to speak. And we hold on to that good anchoring news. We can trust it. And as a church, we take seriously the way of truth. Jesus came with a consciousness grounded in love. And friends, as we press into that, as we receive that, we find we are a body free to do the loving work of Christ, to descend into the world in the same way Christ descended into ours. We know this. We know our city and our our systems are full of brokenness. You know, deception parading as the truth, and we are absolutely called to embody the good news in these spaces. But in order to do that, this is so important, we need a new form. We can't use the old weapons. We need a new body, a new consciousness. This is why Jesus founded the church to be the good news. But we must keep telling one another the primary truth of Christ descending and then living that out in love. There's a powerful story that speaks to this notion of speaking truth and love to one another and then embodying that in our world. At some point uh, near the end of the Roman Empire, there was a monk who visited the great city of Rome. And during his time there, he uh, went to witness the gladiator games that were held at the Roman Colosseum. At first, the monk was shocked by the violence being waged by the two combatants in the arena. The crowd all around him was calling for bloodshed and for death. At first, to himself and sort of almost under his breath, the monk began to say, no, no. But as he stood to leave, his voice became louder and stronger. No, no. And to his surprise, others began to join in. And as the the story goes, soon the great Roman Colosseum was filled with a chorus. No, no. Shortly thereafter, the death games of the gladiators were banned from Rome altogether. See, I love this image. A chorus of voices speaking truth and doing it in the way of love. Willing the best. Willing life over death as a body. As we lean into this theme of regathering this year, which is kind of our our Green Lake theme, my hope for us is that we keep the good news of the gospel before us and between us, and then that we would be formed into a body, a chorus of voices, walking in the way of love, being truth together. 
as the band comes up to to close us today in worship, I'm going to invite you to do something that maybe feels a bit uncomfortable, um, but to consider again that moment between Pilate and Jesus, to bring it to mind as we pray. I'm going to pray, and then I'd encourage you to have your own such moment in silence. To, to picture Jesus there before you in your mind. Is there a hard truth you can observe right now in your own story? Maybe a way that you've been living with this deceptive imagination. Consider that. Maybe confess it. Talk to God about it. And then picture Jesus before you, his spirit of truth guiding you into a better, a much better truth. Grounded in his loving presence with you right here, right now. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you came smack into our story. God, we thank you that that is not a truth we have to question. It's a firm foundation. We can stand there. We can trust that. God, we acknowledge in this moment that the the voices around us, the deceptions are vast. God, sometimes we become so comfortable in our ways and in living them out that we don't even see them. Jesus, I pray in this moment that your spirit of truth would show us where has our deceptive imagination taken off? Now, Jesus, we see you. We fix our eyes on you. We're face to face with you. The primary truth. The primary truth that you will not let deception win. God, speak words of encouragement and love to us in this moment. Jesus, from this place of standing firm in our identity and who you are, who you've called us to be, the truth you say about us. May we be a body, a loving body called to be the truth in the world. May we not stay hidden behind doors the way the Pharisees did. Move out into spaces, into the world that you so loved. May it be so, in Jesus' name.